Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Today, I'm feeling honored, and I have to say I'm pretty excited to have my friend Ken Keyes join me in person at the Poolside Studio. I want to begin by providing you some background and a little bit of his bio in a moment. Ken and I have known each other for a number of years, and we had simply lost touch until we recently crossed paths at a local business event, and that turned out to be the perfect opportunity to have a quick chat and for me to invite him to sit down and get caught up as he joined me as a guest on today's podcast. Now, Ken grew up on his family's dairy farm and at a relatively young age had to make a pretty difficult decision to leave the farm because he wanted to pursue his goal and a dream of becoming and being an international speaker, which he accomplished and that It then evolved into him becoming a business owner and providing corporate coaching and far more than that. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But ultimately, Ken's stories and his journey to being an everyday millionaire, like many or perhaps even most, is one of simply hard work and hard lessons and big and uplifting peaks and moments and deep and frustrating valleys. Now, he's faced some challenges in his life, including in his youth of discovering and having to deal with a learning disability, and right up to a time in his business early on of earning some really big money, but paying the ultimate price of just having to be away from his home and his family for extended periods of time, as many as 300 days a year. From that, Ken's going to share some of his life lessons and philosophies with me. Now, a brief overview of his bio is, I, you know, it's impressive to say the least. He's the president and the CEO of his business, the Consulting Resource Group, also known as CRG. He's an expert on leadership, life purpose, wellness, and he's a global authority on behavioral assessment strategies and processes. Since CRG's beginning in 1979, Ken's worked with literally thousands of professionals who reference CRG as the global resource center for personal and professional development. CRG's had over a million people in 30 countries and 12 languages engage in CRG processes that ultimately enrich their lives. He's the co-creator of the business development models for the business. He's written over 4 million words of content for his training programs, his books, his articles, 
And he is a leading expert on assisting individuals and families and organizations to realize their full potential and to live on purpose. As an internationally known author, speaker, and consultant over the past 28 years, Ken has conducted literally thousands of presentations and keynotes, along with providing an immeasurable number of hours in consulting and coaching. Now, Ken's commitment is always to raise his personal and professional bar, and that supports his nature of wanting to be a contribution in making a positive difference in the world by being the best he can be. And that actually led him to expanding his studies in 2014 to receiving his PhD in leadership and management, which was now in addition to his MBA in international business. Dr. Keyes is the author of Why Aren't You More Like Me? Deliberate Leadership and The Quest for Purpose. Listen in today as Ken and I are going to get real, we're going to share some laughs, and we're going to have a chat about his journey to being an everyday millionaire. So Ken, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Happy to have you on the show and uh, welcome to our uh, Everyday Millionaire poolside studio. It's a little uh, rainy out there, but it's warm and dry in here. So anyways, welcome and uh, nice to have you on the show. Well, it's great to be here. And if the audience could see the studio, the way that you've done it is just absolutely <laughs> rocks. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> I'll share some uh, pictures one day uh, of this uh, poolside studio, but um, it's got a nice view of the pool when you look out the window. Anyways, uh, let's carry on. So, Ken, it's really great to have you on the show, and um, I've gotten to know you uh, a little bit over the years. We've had you on our stage presenting, and you've just got what I believe to be a great story. You're uh, certainly interesting. You're, you've developed some cool things in business, and the context for the show really is about the success that you achieved and not so much about what you've achieved, but the path you took to achieve it. So let's just start kind of at the top and we'll work our way around. But, you know, if somebody, your, your bio is quite diverse. You've uh, done a lot of things in your life. I mean, you're an author and you're a speaker and you've built a business. And what's your, I don't know, what's your elevator pitch? I guess that's the question I like to start with. If somebody walked up to you today and said, so Ken, what do you do? What's your response to that? What's my response? Uh, two things. Number one, I'm an expert in leadership, wellness, and life purpose. And my purpose in life is to help others to live, lead, and work on purpose and stop. So my whole life at this point is around what can I do to contribute to you realizing your potential in whatever context that might be. Now, you do that a number of ways. You've got a, your business called CRG, which is Consulting Resource Group. Correct. And... Just tell us a little bit about your business, because it's a very interesting model. It's actually where you and Stephanie and I met, and we met you and Brenda at that time, uh, your wife, and really started to look into the work that you do and participate in it. It was uh, quite fascinating, and it, we learned so much from it. We actually still apply a lot of what we learned even to this day, which is, gosh, got to be seven seven years, six years, seven Yeah, years? somewhere in there. Yeah, somewhere in there. later, so it's sure. kind of cool. So share with us what about CRG and uh, give us a little bit of a picture of what it is about. Well, CRG really was, it was started by Dr. Terry Anderson, and he wanted to create assessments and tools that serve the learner. Rather than tests I do to you, I want to create assessments I do with you. 
And so even when we were speaking on your stage and we we're doing the values assessment, so we have an entire holistic assessment system. So people are familiar with personality or personality assessments. And we have one of those in different contexts for sales, for personal, for instructional, for entrepreneurs, if somebody wants to own their business. But in addition to that, we said we want to develop the whole person. So it's not just personality or personal style, as we call it. Then there's health and wellness. Then there's self-worth. Then we talk about leadership skills. Then I can I actually make values-based decisions? And I still remember Don getting up in the middle of the program we did for you. It says, man, this thing rocks. This is the best thing ever. Like yeah. I said, okay. And that's because we try to simplify it. So now here we are nearly 40 years later. I've owned the company for nearly 15, been around to it for since 1990 is that we do business in 30 countries. We have 12 languages, you know, translated into Chinese or French, Spanish, whatever. And really we're there to have tools that help people to create self-awareness. And in that space of self-awareness, of being conscious about what I'm at, and we're, you know, everybody talks about mindfulness as the big trend in coaching right now, but how do I get that? Well, you know, who do I, do I know myself? And so we really facilitate that through the tools in a powerful yet simple way so that I can then make some decisions. And my favorite word in life is about being intentional. You know, am I accidentally going somewhere? And that's what you're trying to do in the show is say, you know, people achieve this millionaire status. So what? But most of it has to do with being intentional. They set some goals. They were conscious about things. And so CRG really equips other professional developers with these resources, such as yourself. I know you did some training with the with your team on the sales. You know, why don't you sell the way that I buy? Helping them understand their selling style and buying style. And then we really just leverage that out. And then, of course, I've written a few books around it to be able to help people to achieve and know the information a little bit further. You know, you, uh, you drop, I've written a few books around it. <laughs> you know, that writing a book is not something that anybody should take lightly. It's, it's an accomplishment, you know. And uh, so uh, you've written... What was I reading? Three million words or something like that? In Sorry, books. four. Four million. Four million. And uh, so that's quite an accomplishment. And uh, that says a lot to just your the way you think and your commitment to, I guess, delivering the knowledge and the resources to not only your clients, but to the general public and, and growing and being better people and, and stepping up and elevating their game, learning. Know thyself, I guess they say, and you and the program that you deliver really, I guess, speaks to that. Absolutely. And in giving people a safe pace to do it. Yeah. So the program that you and Stephanie attended, you know, how can we create an environment so we can accelerate it in just three days to be able to go deep, wide, and then equip you for the rest of your life? Now, it's interesting, you know, you say, and I know that you wanted to do in this show for the people that are listening, you would have never ever convinced me that I was going to be an author when I was a teenager. I right. knew I was going to be a speaker. I had a sense of that calling. But my grade nine English teacher said, Ken, you are never going to amount to anything. I mean, I can almost, I'm just almost in tears at it because I see mm -hmm. you across here. And that was because I couldn't read or write. And it was when I did my master's degree, they discovered I was dyslexic. Ah, wow. What a common story. It's <laughs> like, you know, you hear that. And, and so, wow, 
Good for you. That's cool. And so now I'm, you can't see how old I am on the air, <laughs> but I'm, I'm old enough that there weren't computers when I went to high school. Right. And computers were just coming in when I was doing my master's degree. Yeah. And so just thank goodness that Dr. Anderson just started to mentor me. He says, I see some hope in you, Ken, yeah. but I'm not sure, you know, your language sucks. That's actually what he said. It was terrible. But grammar, uh, if you listen to my words while we do this podcast, I'll have some uh, out of sequence. I just, you know what, I'm doing the best that I can at mm. this point. Mm. But of all things, and I even looked it up in my annual just two years ago, I said, who was that English teacher? I had forgotten her name. It was Mrs. Hart. And I says, ah, Mrs. Hart, now I have, you know, three and a half books, technically, all these assessments I've co-authored, all these articles, over 500. I said, who would have thought? And so my encouragement to people that are listening is that the journey for people, this is not easy. I struggled. When I was in high school, I was suicidal because, you don't know, I was just the kid that was not accepted. I grew up on a rural farm, grew up as a dairy farmer, right. and then here I am, you know, on stages around the world teaching and working with doctorate degrees. And even though I have my own now, I really did it for my own learning, not to be better than anybody else, just so that I could expand myself. But these are very accomplished individuals. And I just, I just wake up some mornings, Patrick, and I say, Really? Like, I pinched myself and said, did this just happen? Like, was I part of this process? Did I contribute to the transformation of those individuals? So even when we get there, I think one of the things that is really, and I haven't always been this way because I was younger. I remember I was 28 when I was getting into this. I said, I'm not going to take 20 years to be like Anthony Robbins or some of these. I'm going to be able to do it in two. (laughs) It's a journey. I found out that was absolutely (laughs) false you know, the arrogance of a 28-year-old that you know it all. I found out I didn't know anything. And now that I'm in, you know, nearly 60, I found out I know nothing. And it's just that you you humble yourself to say that you're really here to serve. And when I, my business really transformed when I stopped trying to perform and just moved into this place of service. And it's an honor to be able to serve. And we were talking before we got on the air, you know, this Yes, it's nice to have resources. It's nice to be nice to be able to do nice things, but also to be have your bills paid and and all these things that come with being successful. What's even more important is the bill the ability to really create a meaningful life, which is the ability to serve others, to help others, to support others. And you know, one of my mentors is Marshall Goldsmith, the number one coach in the world. Right, gets paid a significant amount of funds to do it, and he was kind enough to endorse one of my last books, Deliberate Leadership. And, you know, he really, he did a, some research and he said, you know, what helps people is this ability of being gratitude or like thankful, but well-being comes out of the ability to serve, not to take. And I know the the world out there or TV shows would like us to believe, Patrick, that taking is the way that you should do it. I, I'm here to tell you that's absolutely false. Right. That's absolutely false. And I think it takes a while to arrive at that, you know, in terms of who we are as a contribution. I want to go back a little bit to a couple of things that I picked up on that you said, Ken, and one of which was, when you talk about dyslexia, it's so interesting that you brought that up. You know, number one, I think you may or may not know that Stephanie was dyslexic growing up as well. Mm -mm. And if it wasn't for her mother actually having an understanding or patience, although they couldn't identify it, it was... uh, her mom saying that, I know how smart you are. There's something else going on here. And they finally discovered what that was. And of course, 
there was that was at a time where I don't even think anybody knew what the word was. They didn't understand that you could see things upside down and backwards and words didn't come together and letters just didn't make any sense. That was one aspect of it. And it was it's just so interesting that just this morning, and I I don't recall his name, but I think he played hockey for Chicago, maybe Vancouver. He started, he just released a book and he just talks about it. he was a goalie, and I just can't hmm. think of his name right now. And he talks about the time he went through and being dyslexic and not being able to read and what it caused for him in terms of he went on a different path, which is around alcoholism, I believe, is what his story mm. is. And it's just so interesting. So the fact that you bring that up and then here you are today and I, another good friend of mine, you know, a guy by the name of Philip McKernan, that some of the listeners will recognize that was his story. So so here's where I want to go with that. There's a couple things that show up for me. Number one is that when you look back and reflect now as the person you've become, do you see where being affected by dyslexia, I don't know what you even call that. Like it's not a disease. What do you call that? It's an, uh, it's a, they say learning disability is learning the disability, f- right? sure. official title, right. I guess. So now you had to overcome that well, there, you know, that speaks to, I guess, some resilience that speaks to uh, the, you know, some emotional, I guess, uh, EQ, AQ, you know, adversity quotient, uh, emotional quotient. There's something about that. So when you look back on it, do you see where that was what made you stronger? It's like that old saying, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's an obstacle you had to overcome. I don't know. I'm just asking the question. Well, I think partly for sure that I really had to work harder at it, mm-hmm. at certain things. And language didn't come easy though verbally i've always had a certain amount of verbal prowess if you want to call it that to be able to articulate myself i was emceeing banquets when i was 18 years of age but this writing and reading was just a struggle right mm-hmm. uh, and so i just uh, quite frankly avoided it but on the other hand i said what i always learned how to work hard i mean you grew up on a dairy farm it's 24 7 365 days it's I mean, you're yeah. all so there was that heritage side mm-hmm. of working hard. When I first came home from college, I started working for my parents and only lasted two years because I was too independent. They both wanted to be in charge. But my parents had 14 years without a day off. So that was the expectation they had on me. So yeah. so that was driving it. And and the other one is when you have and you learn about these kind of conditions. You can be empathetic towards other people who are going through it. And I think that helps us, Patrick, because, you know, this sense of entitlement that sometimes can go around out there or nobody gives you anything. You you do have to work for it. And this idea that it was you were lucky or you, you were given, that's not true. And so I never, ever expected that. I never expected that, okay, it was just going to show up. I, I really had to be intentional with it. And I knew that I had to take responsibility for my condition. I had to take responsibility for my own journey and I couldn't blame or criticize other people for it. Was there a time where you were angry about it? Where there was, was there a time when you felt sorry for yourself about it? Like, why is this happening to me? There was more emotions and I, and even just recently, because mm. I do some emotional re- release stuff and, and I won't get into it. People call it tapping or emotional freedom technique and yeah. it's powerful stuff. But anyways, I had resentment to my grade nine teacher. Mm. Because she really, and I didn't realize that that had been entrenched deeply. So when we think some people are listing where some of our success has been hindered, I just want everybody to know you need to take responsibility to what you say to people. Mm-hmm. And that even though she was probably well-meaning, she had this British kind of 
of attitude that she was attacking me that somehow or other I wasn't giving my best, mm-hmm. somehow or other that I wasn't good enough. And that was being unfair of her. That was being unjust of her. And I think I was bitter for sure for many, many years. And then probably deep-seated at the cellular level, I was hindered mm-hmm. by that item. Because even now, when I say it, was, and I try to kind of go back to grade nine, you got to think, that's a long time ago. It's real for me. And then struggling with English, um, basically I almost failed high school because I got a C minus. They just basically passed me. I got B's and A's and just about everything else, but English was always C minus. You were forced to take French to grade 10 when I was coming through. That was like a D. And uh, because languages were just not coming easily to me. And I think people, uh, they just didn't understand where I was at. And as a, I don't know, how old was I when grade nine? is that uh, grade nines, their emotional state is fragile. Mm-hmm. And we have to take responsibility as adults. I We had somebody in training... But just, that's assuming one thing, and that is is that that individual teaching has some kind of emotional stability themselves. We never know what that adult's operating on top of. You know, you're, Fair enough. You know, we Fair just, enough. Sadly, and I'm not defending her, but the reality of it is, is you know, we, we go through that process and we're dealing with adults that have got their own stuff. I mean, you consider how much work you've done over the years, personal, professional development, how much I've done. You know, I, I laugh. My daughter sometimes go, Dad, you know, like, you, you broke me. You know, she blames me for stuff in a fun way. We have some good times with it. But the reality of it is, is that as adults, we do what we can with the kids. We try and be very conscious of it. But ultimately, back in you, when you were in grade nine, man, there, that ev- evolution of being for people mm-hmm. just didn't exist. So, so do you think that was just a when you caught to it? Was it just about maybe shame that you carried forward through your life around that that particular time of your life? Yeah, shame and also just um, a real sense of insecurity, right? Build real up. sense yeah. of insecurity, and it just transferred throughout the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. As far as <laughs> you know, grade twelve, you know, ask twelve people the Beach Boys. I mean, I'm seeing twelve girls who all said no. I mean, that pretty well beats your <laughs> yeah, ego yeah, yeah. into yeah, submission in a hurry. It's just bad, bad. Well, okay, so let's go a little bit from that. So, you know, back in you know, you you left the farm. How old were you when you left the farm? I was in my early 20s, so 24, 25. Were your parents supportive of that, or were they kind of going... Oh, no, no. because I am the third, uh, it's third generation, mm-hmm. firstborn male, Eastern European descent. Oh, you should have been Excuse there. Excuse me, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I did all of this for you, yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, betrayal, uh, I can't believe you're leaving, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, my dad did the best that he could. And now I see it, but at the time, I was not emotionally mature to see it. My dad, his dad died when he was 16. His eldest brother, who was his partner on the farm, died when he was 17. And he took over the farm when he was 17 years of age and quit school at grade nine so that he could manage all of this. Mm -hmm. How could he, he just, communications and working with me was just not something that he knew what to do. And so both of us wanted to be in charge and it just didn't go very well. So I left, I went into a couple of agricultural jobs in sales and the federal government, and then I eventually started my own sales training company in the 80s. Now, that's interesting. So what inspired you to do that? Did you, at some level, do you think, have that entrepreneurial spirit that you saw yourself doing something? Or was it just a case of, you know, I want to be on my own, I want to be my own boss, I want to, you know, I want to develop my own stuff, you know, because at that time it was... For you, it wasn't probably about contribution as much as it was, I want to make a living. I want to support my family. I want to build a business, 
so was there a place for you where there was an underlying entrepreneurial spirit or did it just evolve? It, it evolved. I mean, I knew that there was a certain amount that I wanted to do on my own because in the midst of this, I actually started my own dairy farm. Mm. So I went out and I went into this role with the Federal Department of Agriculture. And then I left that in about four years. I was offered a position in a sales position in an agricultural company. So that was still in my frame of reference. And while I had that job, I started my own dairy farm across the street from my folks' farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually tell the story in one of my books, Why Aren't You More Like Me?, is that I got up one morning, it was 5.30 in the morning, I was looking at the suns coming up, it's probably in May, and I said to myself, and I think this is what everybody needs to ask themselves, I said, is it okay if I was here 20 years from now with that sun coming up? Yeah. And uh, and I said, I said, no, 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 no. I, I mean, what I'm doing, I'm good at, but it's not okay to be here for the next 20 years. And so that was really the beginning of saying, okay, then what direction? I always knew when I was 16 years of age, I would belong to 4-H. And so it was a great youth program, you know, for, for rural individuals. And I was in Toronto at a conference that I had won to go to. And here's this conference of 400 delegates. I'm 16 years of age, and I'm to give the thank you speech to all these, you know, the CEO of the Royal Bank of Canada or the Bank of Montreal, et cetera. I was nervous. I was sweating bullets, but I loved it. I loved. I knew it then that that's what I was supposed to be doing. But it was this, as you said, progression into development to be able to say, how can I make this my profession? And then there was an opportunity that came up where a friend of mine was starting a franchise for sales training, and I got involved that way. Now, unfortunately, the franchise went sideways. It was poorly run, but at least I'm thankful that it got me into this industry. Was your, on your speaking now, because we've had you on our stage, I've seen you speak uh, on more than one occasion, and you're very good. You are, you're engaging, you're really paying attention to uh, the crowd in terms of what you bring to the table. Did you have formal training with your speaking, or was it all kind of developed and just paid attention and self-taught, or did you do some formal training and behind all that? I did formal development, if you want to call it that. So I actually belonged to Toastmasters in the 80s before I started going to professional speaking. And then I've been uh, a sort of charter member, not a charter, but a member of the National Speakers Association since 1989. So that's the profession for individuals that do speaking for a living. And then um, Canada started its own chapter, the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. So I was going there. And then uh, I was blessed with, in 1992, Lee Iacocca was at Chrysler. And it's interesting, you talk about serendipity events that change your trajectory for your whole life. Mm -hmm. I met an individual at an NSA conference in Dallas who lived in Atlanta, who met a person from Toronto who phoned me to said, oh, by the way, Chrysler's doing the largest training program in the history of North America. Did you want to apply? And so I applied to this conference or to this uh, position, which was customer service training as they were launching the LHs for Chrysler. I was uh, one of uh, 50 chosen in the, in the country of Canada, one of the team leaders, so only one of six, at the young age of 30 or something at that time, 32. And then uh, 18 months later, they invited six people back to do the training for Chrysler all across the country, and I was one of those six. And then they said, listen, we would like you and your partner to do all the soft skills for the entire country, which I just about did for a decade. So all of a sudden, you talk about training, 
I was doing 200 plus presentations a year for six years in a row, all day workshops that we had developed. You get better when you do that amount of work, Patrick. Did Now tell me about that time in your life. I mean, that's six years, 200 presentations a year. You're, I'm assuming, traveling. And 300, 300 days a year. 300 days a year. You're at, married at that point. Yes. Two little kids. Two little children. So, you know, it's interesting because the fork in the road was when the Chrysler opportunity showed up and sounds like a little bit of a tipping point. Would that have been what you would call a tipping point for you in just in business and I oh, guess, absolutely. Yeah, a big deal. Absolutely. And then six years later, though, now you're at some point you're checking in, you're going You've got Brenda and two children, and you're traveling 300 days a year. And at some point, you check in and go, what the heck am I doing? Or how did that unfold for you? Oh, uh, I still remember the day. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were, to a certain extent, when you do that amount of business, multiple seven figures with the company as the sole provider, they phoned me on a Friday, Patrick. And they said, listen, we need you in Detroit on Monday morning. And I was, I actually commuted to Detroit for a year during, this was prior to the fact that email and, and digital media was allowed to be able to develop programs, get it to them. I had to show up in person to develop and work with the decision makers in Chrysler every week. And so it was Friday. I wasn't scheduled to go to Detroit the next Monday. And um, it was Stephanie's second or third birthday. We had planned a day out with the family. We're going to go and hang out or whatever. And Stephanie's my daughter. In, um, and they said, we need you here Monday. This is Friday. And I said, no, I've got something planned with my whole family. And they said, listen, you want the contract? You will be here Monday. So I knew the writing was on the wall right there because that's not the kind of relationship that I wanted to be in where I was not respected. I was seen, I hate the word vendor. Oh, you're the vendor. No, no, I'm a partner and be able to help you to transform your retail division of Chrysler. So that was part one. Then the second happened is we were really connected with the Canadian Automotive Dealers Association. And I had flown out to Ottawa for their annual dinner, and I was at the president's table. I was going to set up. And I was in my hotel, the president, the, the, the awards night, the dinner, it's in two hours. I said, that's it. I'm going home. I'm done. I'm absolutely done. I had been on the road 1,500 days in the past five years. I was literally... Now, Brenda really doesn't like it when I mention this because she hates me in public, but she'll never listen to it, so it's good. <laughs> but really, it ended up in our separation after that. And so it was it was a wake-up call. She's, listen, virtually, Ken, I was a single mom. I would come home Friday around 7 or 8 at night. I'd sleep all day Saturday, and I'd fly out on 4 o'clock on Sunday. And that was our really our relationship for many, many years. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it but I would never do it again. So what do you, what do you think you learned from that? You know, there was, you know, let's go back as you know, when we're, when we're looking at this conversation in the podcast and the discussion about supporting others in their success and learning from others that have gone, you know, done the things that you've done, you know, some would look at that as a success. You I mean, you did several years, uh, uh, big money, big money, and at a cost of perhaps a relationship almost, your relationship. And so do you look at it as a time of your life that was success or was it a, 
Was it a kind of, I don't want to call it a failure. Was it a mistake or was it a journey that in reflection you would never do that again? So in all of this, I guess what I'm trying to ask, Ken, is that if you were, you know, somebody listening to this, what guidance would you give them during that time? Because you sacrificed a lot for money. So that was, was that their main driver? What was driving you at the time? Was it strictly the money? Because in other parts of the conversation we have, right, your own development and your own growth is that you realize that, you know, money's awesome. We've made a lot of it and we've had a great lifestyle because of it and we've created a great life with it. But at what cost? So I don't know. What would you, would, would there some, be some lessons in there, some guidance that oh, you would share? I don't know. Uh, we, we only have seven hours <laughs> left on the podcast, Patrick. You know, when we think about life lessons, you know, I, I, I'm very, very thankful for the experience. I mean, it accelerated my capabilities as a professional. I did in five or six years what most people would take in a lifetime. It would just There's just very rare that you get that amount of intensity to develop, design, deploy. We had 12 full-time trainers at one point, too. Well, I wasn't just doing it on my own. We had a full team doing the entire country. Uh, but I was involved with a, just about all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Looking back, I said, at what expense, right? Now, to Brenda's credit, you know, we worked through it. We became better because of it. Uh, but I don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish the... Uh, dilemma is that you can't be connected with your significant other via distance. You know, this thing about a low-maintenance friendship, there isn't really no such thing. Mm -hmm. A friendship is where I actually invest in, I stay connected, I'm there for that person. And so one thing that I, it was probably my own lack of confidence, even though I had all this success around me, Mm -hmm. is that sometimes you have to stand for what's right. Meaning, uh, my people that I reported to at Chrysler phoning me and expecting me to be there on Monday was their culture. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean that I said yes because I was in fear of them saying, we don't want you anymore. Right. I should never, ever be in that position. So you, you know, the, I think, you know, for me, what I see is, and I hear it in also in your language, there's a couple things that I wanted to, you know, that I do want to mention around just what I've heard so far. Number one, be true to yourself. And you were not probably being true to yourself, but you hadn't really, you didn't know yourself probably as well as you do now, back then. And, and back to the, you know, the other phrase that you used, which is not a common one, but I'm very familiar with it. And I know many people are, lots aren't, which is you've kind of discovered your calling. And at that time, do you think that you had any idea what your calling was, or was it really just about developing your business and, and, and making money at that time? Was it, was it more of a survival mode, if you will, survival instinct? I think the calling was always there, mm-hmm. but the opportunity was always there at the same time. And so, I mean, I was using a lot of CRG tools. So Dr. Anderson had founded the company, was best man at my wedding. And so we were friends, we were connected uh, I knew about the company. I was inside as VP of marketing, and then I left to do this whole Chrysler thing. But what was really how it ended is that the contract was canceled seven days after 9-11. And it was almost like 9-11 released me. Right. So they said, sorry, we're stopping everything this moment. I went from 100000 a month personal income to zero in seven days. Wow. Because I had really put everything into that basket. Right. So 
I mean, all of a sudden you have this wake-up call because in my mind always was, I need to diversify. I need to have some other sources. I really shouldn't be relying on a sole source client, but it had consumed everything I had as far as time. So we really hadn't diversified much in what we were offering. And I said, oh, but I was, I mean, I'm not thankful for 9-11. Don't ever think mm. that. But that really was what triggered me moving into purchasing CRG and then taking the tools and redoing it. And then I went from being on the road, you know, pretty well every day to never going on the road for almost 10 years. So I went to the other extreme and hid as an author. And so I, I reframed it this way. I used to be a speaker who wrote, and now I'm an author who speaks. Right. And so that was that was the transition for me. And so I just threw myself in for nearly a decade, 10 years of retooling, revising, and redoing CRG because it was basically an absentee ownership thing and put everything online and doing all the reports and just found that I was okay with that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to kind of be out there because a lot of us, you know, if we're insecure, which I was in my younger years, is we go out to perform to get our needs met rather than being comfortable with ourselves. And I mean, that was certainly true. I had a lot of really good friends in college. And I tell the story in one of my books and, and one of the, my good friends, and she said, Ken, stop being a jerk. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, stop trying so hard. Like, just chill. You're nice enough. With, you're trying too hard. You remember the desperate guy in high school? <laughs> Never got the dates, <laughs> the right? The try too hard yeah, guy. Yeah, and, right? and the try too hard guy. <laughs> and then there was the other guy who was really kind of like, rude to the girls and he was getting all the dates. And I said, I never figured that out. Right. And so, yes, I wish sometimes Patrick that I could take this maturity and scroll it and fit it in my 28 year old body and say, well, now that would rock. And there is, I'm sorry. I, I hate to say this to the younger crowd out there. There's no replacement for that experience. They're just, just there isn't. Isn't. it's just an evolution of it just is. who you and, become. And, and at the same time, allow us that no matter what age we are, that just be in the journey. Um, you know, the, the Western disease, as Dr. Marshall Goldness is, is when I get there. No, 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 no. You're here now, right? You know, you talk about mindful being here. This moment, this very moment as I'm with Patrick right now, can I be here right now? Can I be right here in this podcast? Can I give my best? Because dinner right now and, you know, four hours from now or something else or tomorrow's seminar, it really doesn't matter. So can we actually be here now? And with digital distractions, Patrick, I mean, I didn't have that 20 years ago. Now that's the big thing for people is that we are so distracted with so many options is that the big thing for society right now is how do I filter the noise? How do I just get rid of all that stuff that is just noise? It's it's not meaningful. And, um, you know, my encouragement people right now as they go forward is that, you know, just be that authentic self that you were talking about before. Be true to yourself. That does not mean being self-centered. That's something different. It's mean around being, I use the word self-honoring. Is honoring yourself while I able to serve you, Patrick, or serve this audience or somebody else there? Can I can I do both? And then the answer is absolutely. Now, to the degree that you and Brenda went through the time you went through, I, you know, in my conversations with many individuals on both, you know, 
man and female and those individuals that have had success, you know, you look at the relationships that they've had. And of course, there's that phrase that says behind every good man is an, an amazing woman, is something along that line. Mm-hmm. And how big of an impact was, you know, how how big a contribution was Brenda to all that you've achieved in your life and your lives as a couple and, you know, as a partner in, in your business and what you've achieved? How, how big a factor is that for you? Well, you know, with not being corny, I mean, it's huge, right? Um, the reality is my kids are awesome. You know, Tim's going to get married soon and he's 21 and I don't want to date this podcast. You can listen to it 10 years from now, but, and Stephanie's 20 and they're both amazing kids, but I know why they are because Brenda was there for them when I wasn't. And so she really did take care of things. Uh, she was always supportive of the entrepreneurial nature. So I never got any kind of negative feedback that you shouldn't do this or sh- and nagged about it, but it was certainly her heart was missing me not being there. And then she's just a doer. I mean, you've met her, her her profile is the uh, doer. So things at home and being busy and getting things done, she was always there. She worked in the company for a little bit after we resolved this whole relationship stuff. And this was many years ago, right? Uh, But she says, that's not me. And I also knew that I need to honor where she needed to go. So now as an academic coach at a university, uh, then she's following her passion. But no, for sure, uh, she has always been supportive of that entrepreneurial journey. I suppose there would be some significant others or spouses or partners who would say, you know, it can get a real job, get something that's nine to five. That's never been said to me. And so I do very much appreciate that for sure. So... What's the kind of the the biggest failure you've ever had that just turned out to be the most, the biggest blessing in disguise? Anything that you can identify? Well, as far as failure that turned into blessing, I'm not, let me just think about that. I know one of the biggest failures, (laughs) I'm not sure if I can answer that. And we were talking about that just before we went on air. And that was just when you uh, do well, people just seem to find you about, Ken, uh, um, can you give me some money? And so one of the biggest failures was just a guy that scammed me out of like a lot of money. And it was interesting. They call it a con artist for a reason, Patrick. They are an artist at manipulating others. And in that moment, now this is many years ago, but one one of the things that was creeping up in me, even though I said I didn't have it, was this whole thing about greed because they know how to play to it. And the greed was, if you invest in this, yada, 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 I won't kind of go through the details, then, you know, you're going to get hundreds of millions of dollars, Ken. Oh, great. Okay, fine. And I had several other friends that were in it, and that's how they get you in because they use affiliate relationships and leverage those. And um, man, it hurt. It just, ego, lost lots of dollars. That could have paid for my kid's university. It was that much. But the blessing on the other side is, you know what, is... Just back off of the greed. Just really stop it already and just be thoughtful. Just be careful and not cynical. I mean, I had to kind of purge that out. But just to say, you know what, Um, just be discerning, I guess is the word. And this thing about if it's too good to be true, it it most probably is, right? I mean, you're teaching people in your network to be... 
uh, diligent in their review of what they're going to do with, let's say, a real estate portfolio. They say, oh, well, that's great. And you're going to get 40% return on this real estate. And you say, time out, time out. (laughs) I know if if, if Mr. Campbell was here, he'd be saying, Ken, just look, get a gun, put a bullet in your foot, slow yourself (laughs) down. And uh, so the reality is, is that sometimes, you know, these people come in because I really needed to learn the lesson to slow down on those things and to be careful. The other thing that was a blessing, and I just share this with everybody, is that many, many years ago, about 15 years ago, I had seven or eight businesses, Patrick, and really to my detriment and, and falsely. And it's interesting, you know, I was in my own business. I would have taken my own advice back then. I was in all these businesses to potentially meet a need of wanting variety in business, wanting variety in my life. And it was, it was incorrect. I had an RV rental business. I, I had, I was silent partner in the dairy farm that I'd sort of passed on to this other individual. Um, we had an automotive dealership. I mean, on it goes, right? And oh, I had an alarm company. And, you know, I couldn't take care of all of them. Most of them were startups. Well, there's no way. And what I have learned at this point is that, you know, except for real estate, and um, that CRG is where I invest wholly, like focused time. So I can do three things and I can lead a company and grow it and expand sort of its vision. I can write and contribute that way with authorship. And then the third one is to be able to share and be a speaker, which is one of my passions to be in an audience that's 1,000, 2,000, 100, 10 people, doesn't matter as long as the people are there for the purpose of learning, is that I can get all the diversity that I need within that context there. So it's sometimes we have too much going on. And so I learned really through vetting through to get rid of the stuff that was sort of frivolous or on the edge that was taking away from focused energy and focused success within something that I'm that I'm good at, but also passionate about. So I think sometimes uh, there's, as I said earlier, shiny objects can get in the way. Now, I know you're interviewing me. Has that happened to you? Were shiny objects that got in the way, Patrick? <laughs> what time is it now? Yeah, of course. I, I think I think that's just the normal. I think that's a normal part of uh, an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I think that is something that we get excited about. At least I do. When I can create, when I can take something off the ground and get it going, get it moving, it fires me up a lot. So I do have a tendency to take on more than I probably should, and it's not that I. I still also really like that part of it. It doesn't shut me down. It doesn't weigh me down. And uh, I think that for me, those shiny objects are good. And I've gotten into trouble because of it, you know, and certainly I've, it's cost me some money over the years and and some time. And maybe, yeah, I I think that's about it. So yes to the the answer to the question. Yeah. At the end of the day. But thanks for the (laughs) question. Oh, good. I feel so much better now. I thought I was the only one. Yeah, yeah. Misery loves company, as they say. And we're good at that. So... Um, a couple things. Now you mentioned real estate. Do you do you take some of what you earn in your businesses? You're you because you're like me in one aspect of it. You like to grow your business and you like to grow businesses. There's a part of that mm-hmm. of your life. And do you take some of that capital? And is real estate a game that you play? I was playing it, but what I did is I got out and put it, all the money into the company. Right. And what I had underestimated when I bought CRG way back in 2002. And of course, this was just emerging at the time. Is this the cost of technology? <laughs> mm, and staying ahead uh, of it, I guess. Oh, and staying ahead of it. I mean, just 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to create uh, online solutions of our own making. And, and so I don't regret it. I just had underestimated the cost of it because everybody said, oh, well, uh, online's cheap. No, no, no. The, the, our latest solution for our online assessments have 440,000 lines of code. Wow. And so that didn't happen in an afternoon. And somebody paid for all of that code to be put together. And Adrian, our senior guy, he took four years to kind of facilitate it and put it all together. But if I don't do it, I know that I'm not going to realize the vision. And it's interesting, you know, as 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 we grow up, and by the way, I have amazing relationships, I think anyways, with my kids. They are very much wanting to go into real estate development. They want to go into real estate investment. And it's interesting, it's almost like I've plugged into this new energy, this new excitement to be able to work with them. You know, and what do parents want for their kids is just for to set up sort of an environment where they can have confidence that they can realize their potential. But if I can play with them, well, what an honor that your kids would even be open enough to do this with you. So uh, that notwithstanding, we're looking at how we kind of transition back into some of these things into the future, because I basically said, okay, no, we're going to go all in. It was Texas Hold'em to be able to take uh, the company to the next level. I won't say how much, but it's been a lot that went into uh, the development of all those resources around the company to be able to go it to the next level. And of course, it never stops, right? So um, um, yeah, I just, growing up on the farm, I just love real estate. I love everything about it, land, property, and where you play. We know long-term uh, that is just just a very smart investment. And you're the experts in that. And that's why people you know connect with you through your network. So when you look at what you're doing, I mean, you're you're young at heart, you're young in spirit, you've got lots of energy, which is not common for guys our age. I don't I don't remember how old you are. I'm fifty eight, soon to be fifty nine. I see. Yes, yeah, so, so. I'm way younger than you. Like, <laughs> so, like twelve months. <laughs> twelve months younger. <laughs> so uh, you know, your young energy, your young spirit, you're you're in good shape. You do what you do, and so. When you look at the future, the, you know, the financial, I guess, certainty that you've created for yourself, the lifestyle you've created for yourself, when do you see yourself slowing down or do you, do you does, what is retirement? Do you have that conversation? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've been thinking about that and I said, okay, wh what would I change? We, I mean, we just went away on our 25th anniversary and we're out on the beach in Mexico for a week. So you get to think, and I read four books in seven days and am I just kind of love taking in information. And so one of my colleagues just turned 72, I think, and he's in this business too. And then I was in Philadelphia recently and Jack Canfield was working with a bunch of authors. We get together as a mastermind. And so he's 72 at that time as well. So we think about the co-author of Chicken Soup. You know, in this business, as long as you have your mind, you can just keep going. And so I don't see any time soon of quitting or that's just not sort of in my mindset. However, I do know that I need to be able to establish that passive income in this business, which we haven't to the level that I want to. And so this whole, the, we use this word evergreen, which you probably do too, which is, you know, establishing permanent passive income through intellectual property. Because we have so much content, we know that that is the next vision. And so I just see that that is the quest where at CRG and, and Ken Keys and whatever, is that we take all this content and we create legacy product 
legacy process of its e-learning, whatever it is, so that people can consume it forever and I don't necessarily need to be there and I can continue to add to it at whatever pace that I want to. I know that my wife wants to probably retire soon, you know, not long, but I, I can't really say, but uh, she loves to travel. So the ability to go and just be away for three months a year and do something somewhere. I mean, one of the regrets for many people is they get so elderly that they can't travel anymore. Um, I mean, mobility. And if we think about uh, quality of life, you know, as we move closer to this piece, I said, hey, I'm just going to live to 100, Patrick. So, you know, if somebody wants to check out sooner, that's fine. And I know that we have to take care of our health and there's all kinds of stuff as a health coach all kinds of stuff that uh, is out there that's really toxic to our lives. And you know about it yourself personally. Uh, but I think people to stay engaged in something is very important to life purpose. My stepfather-in-law passed away just a month ago. And, and we spent a lot of time in the home. He was in residential care, had dementia. And so we, we're in these homes. And one thing that I just... I mean, my heart goes out to the people who are in there, but it just is a place of death, Patrick. Mm -hmm. And so my encouragement is that, you know what? There is no word retirement in Hebrew. Retirement, I think, really is something that we don't want to embrace. We want to maybe transition. Let's say I quit my full-time paying job, but then I move into volunteering then uh, I know my wife says, if grandkids come on the way, man, she's in like that. She's full time. She is because that gives meaning that gives purpose to the individuals there. My colleague, Alan Weiss, who turned 72, said, you know what? This idea about forced retirement at 65, are you kidding? One of the things we want, you know, I see this in you. I see this in Don. I see this in others at our age, right? I think it's really around the fact there's a lot of wisdom that's out there. Shouldn't be abandoned at 65 or 70 or whatever. I mean, Reagan was president at 77. Uh, I'm Trump's president at 70. I mean, that's not maybe a good example, but I'm just saying there's all kinds of individuals that really come into the zone. I joke because I have sort of a faith background. Moses's first real job is when he was 80, right? <laughs> so, so if he's starting a job at 80 and went to 120, Patrick. Yeah, there you go. My encouragement is just like, embrace that. The other research around retirement, of course, is I retire my health degrades and I'm dead in five to seven years. Well, who wants that? Yes. It's interesting that uh, at this point in my life, and I have a couple of uh, younger partners, like early 40s and late 30s, and smart, smart guys, really driven, and I love them to death and they're great. But what I've come to realize is in the in the conversation around wisdom, which is interesting, is you have to go through life to have it. You have to get to a certain age to have true wisdom around things. And it's interesting that I look at my partners and I hear them speaking. And I have one of the things that one of my abilities, I, I don't know if it's a gift, sometimes I think it is, is my relatedness. I can go back in time. I can actually think back to a time when I was 40 and almost viscerally feel it. So when I'm listening to somebody, it's I can relate to them in a way that is pretty powerful. And it's a good tool that I have. This is kind of a long-winded way to say that as I observe that you know, business guys, my partners in this case, and others that are at an age where they're fired up, they have a vision, there's just no replacing years. And to your point, 
is that there's so much wisdom out there at 65, but at 35, at 30, at 40, so often people look at that and go, you know, you're out of touch, you're old, you're not keeping up with me. And you just go, you know something, I can see where you're going and it's not a good direction. And then you have to let it go. You know, you have to say you'll crash and burn and you're going to learn the lesson. Like I learned the lesson. And sadly, often I see that you have to just step aside and let those lessons be learned. It's part of gaining that knowledge, I guess, gaining that wisdom is going through the process. And I guess the point is, is that as we age and we see others, is that there's such a a wonderful talent in people that are older, wiser, business guys that have been there, done that, and they get to it way faster. Their learning curve is, they've already gone through it. That's all I guess I got to say about that. Well, you make a perfect transition, Patrick. I'm glad you're the host. This is great. <laughs> this is, is hard work. Yeah, you're doing a really good job. Is, you know, for those of you that are listening, if you're a little bit younger, this is where mentorship, this is where being part of a mastermind group that has a mix in it, because there are many good ideas that come from mm-hmm. youth. Don't get me wrong. Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, Jody, my assistant, is 25. My son, who works in the media department with us, is 21. You know, these kids have some great insights. Now, sometimes you're jumping to conclusions without thoughtfulness. That's okay. I, I I believe I was like that when I was younger, too. Of course you were. So it's really bringing that maturity. Now, there's the other side of it, too, Patrick. Just because you're old doesn't mean that you bring wisdom. We know some people who are 50, 60, who are not so wise. And so age doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. It doesn't. But it does equate to experience, how they've converted that experience to wisdom. Have they really had a developmental mindset? I'm thinking about, you know, I've done work in many countries and companies around the world. And I do recall somebody who was our age in a company and just, you know, very successful at the expense of his people and brutally abusive and just really not a lot of wisdom took sort of the grunt drivenness that um, he had in the beginning of his business out of his bedroom. But he drove this same style into, you know, this multi, multi, multi-million dollar company. And you know what? It It's working, but it wasn't working, if you know what I mean. So he really hadn't developed, really hadn't taken the time to move himself to the next level. And I mean, I continue, I mean, people say, what do you do? It's the rule of five, which uh, Warren Buffett talks about, uh, Bill Gates does, is that I spend five hours a week in learning. And pretty well every morning, I spend one hour on newsletters, podcasts, whatever it is. People say, I don't have time for that. I said, well, no, that is my time. I'm constantly, you know, listening to some kind of leadership podcast, or I read my health newsletters every morning. Or uh, if maybe if it's a spiritual podcast for me personally, or it's uh, something else, I will be in that every single uh, day. As long you know, if I'm doing a full day seminar, I might skip one, but uh, I need to be constantly learning. What's the latest research? What's the the latest pieces that are going on there? And it also shows that those of us that are learning also keep our mind sharper too. You know, you make a really good point. Is that age does not necessarily represent wisdom. That was very wise coming from you, Ken, at your age. Uh, I'm surrounded by some pretty youthful staff on our team. And, you know, and I, and I agree that that enthusiasm and those ideas and the, 
how current they are and what's going on in the world is so fun to be around. And it's inspiring. And having an inspiring team, creating an environment for that creativity, for that, you know, that youthfulness to show up and those ideas to show up. I, I know it fires me up to do that. Mm-hmm. So I find it, it's it's exciting to create that kind of an environment and do that. So for you, um, you're having a bad day. You know, this crap's hitting the fan. Nothing's working out. What's your self-talk? Well, one of the things is that, first of all, I said, that's okay. I mean, we used to get feel guilty that, okay, today I'm for some reason not motivated. <laughs> now, my wife, who's in the university, who has to go to work, I'm an entrepreneur, in what I've done, I've transitioned after my last book, The Quest for Purpose, and spent three months writing it from home. I've decided to work from home most of the time, even though I have an office and staff that are in it. So what I decide is, it's okay to do nothing. I mean, I just, my my self-talk is around, okay, uh, can I allow myself the fact that I am not 100% every single moment? So sometimes I go out to the gym, which I have in my house, and I know that you're setting one up here too, is that, uh, well, I'll just go work out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And then sometimes Brenda says to me, well, how come you do that? I said, what? That was the best thing for me. I come back and then I can maybe even work a couple more hours after that into the evening. But I knew at that minute or that moment that it's okay to be able to kind of transition. Um, The other one is, is that Self-talk is something that you have to work on every day. You have to be intentional about. I mean, I'm a very prayerful person. That's my, uh, I give credit to where I'm in my life from my faith statement, right? And my belief statement and that we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. That's my perception of it. And of course, respect everybody listening for theirs. But that is the most important thing for me, Patrick, as far as how do I move forward. I says, you know, I don't believe I'm the only thing going on here. There's a bigger thing going on. And that really is a core for me. And so uh, that helps a lot. And then I just go and allow to go into, sometimes you have something scheduled that you have to do, Patrick. And then I say, okay, if it's not an urgent item that has to be done this moment, then I let it go that I'm not motivated in a way I go and I just do something fun. If I just go for a walk, go work out, or just do something different. And even though I'm sitting on a computer for five, six, seven, eight hours a day, then I need to get physical and, you know, go out in the yard or do something. How many books have you written now? Well, it's four. And then a dozen assessments mm-hmm. and 40 business programs and over 500 articles. So this many years later, doing all the things that you've done, accomplishing all the financial goals you've accomplished and building your business and achieving what you've achieved, how do you define success? Well, I guess it means different things to different people. But for me is to really be realize your purpose. I mean, I believe, okay, again, it's my bias, Patrick. I happen to be the guy on the show right That's now. That's why so you're on the show, right, pal. So the other three people are beside me right now waiting to get in. Is is that the the number one thing for success is for you to be able to do your assignment. I don't believe you're here by an accident, that you have an assignment, that you have a purpose. The saddest thing was the Gallup poll survey that said out of 142 countries, 87% of people dislike what they do and are disengaged at work. Well, if 90% of the population hate what they're doing, that is not success. Success is going into your track, your calling, your assignment, 
you know what? And some people that might be 80 hours in a week. But if I'm having fun, if I'm enjoying myself, I'm not going to judge you that 80 or 40 or 30 is the right number. That is not for me to decide. And then the other side is that your relationships are nurtured, that your health is that you take a holistic approach to this whole event. I mean, we know that if people have their needs met monetarily, that that creates emotional freedom for them to be, you know, if you didn't have to worry about money for the rest of your life, as far as paying the bills, I mean, the needs, you know, I'm not talking about some fancy trip or something like that. Uh, it puts you in a different space, right? So success is, can you get in a place, which is what you do with your network? Can I get in a place of financial independence? And then how I define it, which is similar to others, is where my passive and residual income is equal to or greater than my monthly obligations. Now, we just saw Johnny Depp go bankrupt at $100 million a year, right? Well, that's where you call stupid money, right? Where you're completely you know, spending $30,000 a day. And, well, you're and detached. For, you're just you, detached. You're not even connected you, yeah, to, to reality. Connected to and, and we can't judge that. So that success is really, did I bring my best? Did I have meaningful relationships? And, um, you know, did I really fulfill my purpose? And, you know, as I started, we started the show together, my purpose is to help others to live, lead, and work and realize their purpose and to realize their potential. And um, one of the things in my book, The Quest for Purpose, I talk about interests. Interests draw us or compel us. I have no idea, Patrick, why I love an audience of 2,000 people and I'm teaching them something on values or their personal style or purpose or whatever. You know, we I don't necessarily know the, how that came to be, but I know that that's one of the things that I am called to do and to inspire individuals and to serve corporations to go to the next level. Because again, the saddest state is for you not to realize your potential, to not get pa uh, tapped into those passions, purpose, assignment, calling, what you know, Kenneth Robinson calls your element. Whatever word you want to use is that if you don't know what your purpose is and you're listening to the show, then your purpose is to find your purpose. Right. And um, sorry, I know you're going to ask a question, but I want to say this one thing around it. My experience now, after being nearly 30 years into this, if you don't know your purpose, then you need to do whatever it takes to find out what it is. In other words, you need to do the work. I did in 1989, you talked about how did I go forward? And I sorry, I just forget that experience. But I hired a coach out of Seattle, Washington. I drove down there twice a month for six months. I spent two to three hours with him for him to take me through his process called Source, which was the filter through. I knew I was supposed to speak and communicate to others, but I didn't know about what or who or what the essence was. And I needed to kind of filter out all the things I wasn't supposed to do, right? And I'm not supposed to teach you cooking. This is not a good thing, right? So, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I totally so, so I spent the time, I invested the time to get to know myself, to, to, are you willing to do the work to be able to figure out who you really are and say, well, I don't know. Well, hang on. Well, then that's your work. Don't get frustrated with it. Don't get angry with it. Don't uh, quit because of it. Is that if there's anything else you want to learn is people don't have the success by accident. You, you filtered through some stuff and yeah, I've screwed up big time and many things doing things I'm not supposed to do, but I also learned what I wasn't supposed to do as part of that experience. Would you agree, um, in, my, in my own experience, when I look at purpose and why we're here, that at some level, whatever it is, 
it is really being a contribution to others at some level. It is, you know, where I think in everybody that I can honestly say I know, where they get lit up, where there's fulfillment, is where whatever work they're doing, and it, and I don't, you know, it could be gardening, but ultimately about that gardening that makes them feel good is when people walk by and are amazed by the gardening. So do you see it that way? I mean, you've been a coach, you're a writer, you've done the work. Do you see that as a kind of a fundamental thing that people need to do is be a contribution to others? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you actually look at the research, there was UBC professor that did it. There's several others. ABC TV did it one as well. Let's say I give you $5, right? And you have a choice with that $5. You spend it on yourself and buy yourself something, or you get a gift to give to somebody else. The When they do the post sort of experimental rating of your happiness, your happiness is always higher when you gave to somebody else for buying something for yourself. That's why consumerism is sort of kind of rampant and, and unfulfilling and out of control because it gives you this sort of immediate high that then just goes away like some kind of uh, opiate kind of thing. And in fact, rather than giving, is that it is better to give because I'm actually going to feel better. ABC did a research where they had all these individuals and they had a happiness rating. And then they said, we would like you to do these things for other people. And they kind of, they skewed the research. They didn't reveal to the participants that this was about them. And they said, Patrick, we want you to read to this grade one class, this book. Uh, Ken, we want you to go to this homeless shelter and then feed them for the next two or three hours. And, and on it went, right? Without a doubt, the happiness rating of the people who contributed, who volunteered, always increased. It wasn't about the grade ones feeling better. You're feeling better because you're reading to them. And so when we get out of this self-centered mode, I just listened or saw some data even yesterday is that the younger generation is becoming isolated because they're living in the social media space, right? And the more that they're on social media, the more that they're isolated. And so they need to turn it off uh, and they need to be able to get out there and start serving, start giving. I don't care what it is, just go down the street and clean up the garbage in your neighbor's yard or something like that. So why would I do that? That's because you're gonna feel better. you know. So we do it to serve. But it's almost like a reverse psychology of self-centeredness because I actually, I'm going to get a better high by doing it. Well, it goes back to the phrase that giving and receiving is the same thing. When you give to somebody, you're giving, they're receiving, but you're also receiving. And what you're receiving is the contribution and the feeling of, of satisfaction in your giving. And it could be the thank you that you receive for giving. But giving and receiving is the same thing. And few people can kind of wrap their mind around that concept is that at the same time they're giving, they're receiving. And that's why that works. And it's what lights people up. When you go back, I just want to take it back a little bit when we talk about being a contribution and the work you're doing, because often you come across people that hate their work. And I've also met many that love their work. But ultimately, if their work isn't being appreciated, if their work that they're doing, if they can't actually see where it's having an impact, that's where the dissatisfaction lives. That's been my experience. So when you go back to those days when you were working hard and making money, were you still feeling that you were being a contribution because you were making a difference in that corporate world? And was there some satisfaction in that or, and it just got to be too much? 
Oh, uh, yeah, certainly there was. It just got to be, yeah, when you get 300 days a year on the mm-hmm. road. Yeah. I actually had more air miles than most pilots, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it just, <laughs> yeah, great. it was great. And then all of a sudden, then I didn't fly. Mm-hmm. And so I knew it wasn't ego driven. So part of that is the motivation. Was it my ego or was I doing it to serve? I think that it was probably a balance of both at that time. Right. And maybe, and sometimes it was more ego because I wanted to kind of take care of this. And yes, it was sort of the, oh boy, this horse is really bringing in a lot of revenue. Let's ride it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a bit of opportunistic yeah. sentiment right. that was part of that as well. So we go back. I want to, yeah, so we're jumping around a little bit. And and I want to go back to something you said just a, a few minutes ago, which was talking about the development, the understanding of what your purpose is. And and some of the resistance that people have to that, you know, discovering that self-discovery, they want to be so right in who they're being because they see that evolution of, of elevating or being something different is making them wrong. So they resist. And I see that in coaching when you're guiding somebody to self-examine. And if there's a, a self-assessment, I think that people do that they feel like they're being made wrong or they're being judged. And it's a, sometimes a difficult process for people to go through, mm-hmm. as you know. I don't do much coaching anymore, to be honest with you, because I find that many people that step up to say they want to be coached, they don't really want to do the work. And so as you were talking about having a coach, there isn't a, I don't think there's been a time in my life where I haven't had a coach, to be honest with you. For me, it's an important part of self-examination. It's a you know looking at who I'm being, how I'm showing up my perspective, it shifts my views. And I don't, that's, that's me. That's how I'm wired. And, and so I don't do much coaching, but it's interesting that I do have a a lady that I connect with every so often who seeks my guidance and, and I kind of mirror back to her some stuff. And what she came to for her, which was really, it was just an awareness that I had. She said to me, she goes, what you're saying right now is, is kind of making me angry. And she said, I know that when you do that, it's something I got to take a look at. It's like a an itch I got to scratch. Mm-hmm. And she said, so for her in that self-reflection, she can get angry in the moment and be like, quit asking me these questions and quit poking, you know, quit poking the tiger kind of thing. But she realizes it's an important part of what she does. What's your experience with people overall? Because you, like I say, you've done a lot of coaching. You've done a lot of work. Do you find... How's your experience around that when people, are they coachable or do you find the same frustration that I do is that people say they want to be coached, but they really don't want to do the work? Yes. <laughs> Both. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it is, and I'm just, of course, being playful, is, it is both. Part of what happens is that some people don't even know what's really holding them back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suspect that you and Richard sometimes say, man, I know that person could rock real estate investment but they're not doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. And there are some hidden fears. There is some uh, programming. Grade nine teachers say you're not going to amount to anything kind of programming. We don't know what's going Nobody can know what's going on in a person's head unless themselves. And so I think many people want to move forward, but they might have fears, Patrick, over what they need to do or where they need to go. It does take a commitment. It does take a willingness. I appreciate you know, Marshall Goldsmith works with the top CEOs of the Fortune 500. So, I mean, he is a very select group. But he says, listen, I I won't coach anybody who's not in integrity. And what he means by that, that don't do what we said we were going to do. 
So I don't have the time to work with somebody who is not willing to take the steps, to take action. And so I've really kind of moved into that place. You know what? If you don't want to be coached, that's okay. That's fine. But I don't have the time to be able to invest in somebody who's not willing to do it. I mean, don't pay me to sit on the couch, but that's not how coaching is. We really work with the individual to come up with their own answers. Is that then, you know, then that's okay. When you're ready, when you're ready to take the steps, then we'll work with you. The other one is, is interesting, uh, you know, as a certified coach, <laughs> Patrick, is when, and I know this is true for me, so I'm just holding up a mirror for myself right now, is when we get angry and when we have people that irritate us, that's a mirror. That's our own issues. So we get frustrated with yada, 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 whatever that is. You know what? Hold up a mirror. That's your stuff. That's not their stuff. One of the things I'm teaching now, and this is for the group out there, Dr. David Burns, who is a renowned psychologist in sort of the deep psychology world, wrote a book called Feeling Good, right? It's 500 pages, four-point font. If you want to have your eyes roll back into your head forever, just read the book. But he has a <laughs> but he has a part there where he really he does cognitive therapy over you remember the movie Anger Management or whatever it was right, and that's the work that he does is that our responses are completely in our control, and so one of the things that he teaches and I we teach it when you came to ours too we talk about suspending, nobody irritates you, nobody frustrates you, nobody upsets you unless you let them, nobody has. And so we are completely 100% responsible for our response. You know, I remember having road rage with my son in the car. He was six years old. I said, what am I doing? Like, what kind of idiot am I? What, what did I just do there? And I said, man, I got to grow out of that. That was an immature kind of response. Like, I don't know the guy. He just cut me off. And so everybody listening, you've had that, right? But we are 100% responsible for our response. I'm not saying what the person did was okay. I'm not saying that what they said wasn't okay. I'm just saying that us getting offended, us getting hooked, us getting upset is completely in our control. You know what? Nobody likes that accountability. I hate it. I hate it, but it's the truth. It's the truth. You know, it's it's funny, of course, living in the lower mainland slash Fraser Valley and the rain and we're all, we're, we're Canadians, so we, we complain about weather and that becomes, but it's, what's interesting about it is if you let weather upset you, whether it's snow or rain or whatever it might be, and the reality of it is it's like traffic, complaining about the traffic, you know, neither the weather or the traffic care. So if you're sitting in your car and dealing with the anger and the rising temperature of uh, blood pressure that you've got going on because the traffic's bad, guess what? The just traffic just doesn't care. It has no attachment to whatever you're going through. Oh, man. I never knew that, Patrick. I'm glad you mentioned so, yeah, that. Oh, but now I better state take the that obvious. State the obvious, right? But yet, yet, some people get, you know, the road rage, and, and that's what it is. So as we kind of wind down the show a little bit and start to go out, which sometimes turns into another half hour, by the way, but okay, uh, it's whatever. always fun. Um, okay, some rapid-fire questions. Let's go with it. What profession, other than what you're doing, would you do? Ministry. Great. So if heaven exists, or whatever your belief is in that, but if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Well done, faithful servant. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? How weird am I? Yeah. Oh, I'm probably 12. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. <laughs> what are you not very good at? Oh, cooking, for sure. So 
Brenda keeps you well fed. That's well, great. she hates cooking, but you know what? She has stepped up and rocks it. Yeah. And apologizes all the time. And it's like always a nine or a 10 out of 10. Uh, you know, something, Steph, it's funny because Stephanie is that same way. She'll just criticize her food. I, there's nothing that she's ever cooked that I won't eat and haven't and been happy to. <laughs> she's an awesome cook, yet she doesn't uh, believe she is. Okay. So tell me something that's true for you that almost nobody agrees with you on. True for me that almost nobody agrees on. Well, that's an interesting, I know there's so much for rapid fire because I have to go deep on that one. Very, very, very deep, empathetic mm. feelings for people. And so, you know, when I was growing up, feelings were not really permitted. My dad never cried. And the, all I've known him, he's 84. So um, showing your feelings, hidden, but I have them. Mm-hmm. How are you these days with that? I think good, but also more sensitive than I've ever been. Just, mm-hmm. you know what? It's okay. You know, I care for people. I can still be direct. I can still be driven. Uh, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not anxious. I'm not anxious. What's your favorite tune? Oh, you know, that's that's also what I'm not good at, is remembering songs' names. <laughs> But, you know, if I go back to my history as a kid, I love Genesis and Phil Collins and just the the energy that he brought there. And then I'm usually into uh, Christian rock, but uh, I don't even remember. There's a, there's a new song called The River, which uh, just, you know, down by the river and just your soul coming from the water. And it's uh, something that whenever it's in the car, but it's, you're going to turn it up, aren't you? <laughs> my uh, daughter sometimes that goes, Dad, really? I'm, you know, don't, you don't need to turn that one up. <laughs> um, I, I get it. Uh, okay, so I'm going to go off on a little bit of a, a I actually decided I'm going to go off on a little bit of a spin. So, you you know, you sit here today at, you know, 50-some years old, late 50s. What would you look back on and tell your 20-year-old self? Chill, man. Just um, be confident that it's all going to work out. You don't have to be anxious about it. And you know what? I think the other one, and even as I say it now, you're okay. Mm-hmm. you're okay. And I mean, for everybody listening here, you know, we all have stuff to work on, C-R-A-P, that we have to work on. But can you actually accept yourself? And not from this love of this egotistical rap, but could I just genuinely, genuinely just, just be there and say, you know what, Ken, you're okay. And just give the person, don't try to impress, don't try to be somebody you're not. Because when I first started in speaking, Patrick, that's what I tried to be. I tried to be a different kind of speaker. And you said authentic, but, you know, in the speaking business, they said, when you find your voice. And what your voice is, is just Ken is going to be Ken. I'm not going to try to present like Anthony Robbins or Brendan Bouchard or Zig Ziglar or whoever it is at the time. I'm just going to do the best that I can and what who I am. And still take ownership for the stuff I need to do. If I was rude with you, if I was short with you, if I had road rage, those are traits I need to to work on. But at the same time, you know what, Ken? You're okay. I think that's the biggest lesson I learned as a speaker was to just be who I am. It's like doing this podcast. This is who I am, and I'm going to do my best to get better at being the best I can be. And uh, I think that's just great advice for everybody is to just be who you are and be the best who you are that you can be. Mm-hmm. Where I go with that. 
that's what you would tell your 20 year old self. What will you tell your 65 year old self? Just do it. Don't wait. Uh, don't have regrets. You know, if you're thinking about pulling the pin on doing something, get on with it because your, your, your years are not <laughs> expanding. What are you grateful for? Oh, uh, my faith and my family. Absolutely. What do you think that when you look and you consider your faith, your family, you've got a great relationship with your children. When you consider what your children, how they see you, you know, we, we, they, how, you, how they see you and how you hope they see you or what they think that you, or how you think they may see you. <laughs> yes. It's always a little different story, I guess. I imagine. What would, you, what would you hope that they see that you're a stand for? Integrity, love, and care of them. And um, just being true. What's integrity? How do you define that for you? Ethics, honesty, uh, do what you say. We, uh, I, many, many years ago, we heard a de- definition of integrity that I kind of come up, shows up for me often, which is, you know, who are you being when nobody's looking? And the question is, do you see integrity? It's just such an important question. You know, when we, when we're, I see integrity as being true to who you are. And the other side of that is discovering who you are and then stake, being being able to take a stand for who you are. When you go back, and I know this is jumping around a little bit, Ken, but when you go back to the days of when you're at the dairy farm and the time you went through with your parents and and probably even the time that, you know, where we got a little bit rocky in your relationship with Brenda, was there a place where you had to take a stand? I use the phrase, were you willing to be misunderstood in the context of your life? Because when you're being, when you stay in integrity, even when you discover who you are, when you get clear on what you're a stand for, those that are in your life that can't, they just can't sometimes be there anymore. I use the example of, you know, maybe as a young man or a young woman, somebody's in the world of, drugs and alcohol, for example. And at some point they say, this doesn't work for me anymore. I'm going to, I'm out of there. So they choose to quit. But all of the people that they're in, that is in their life will judge that. They'll you know, what are you doing? Come on, you can do this. You can be this way. You can be that way. So the question is, are you willing to be misunderstood in the context of your life? As you went through your life, did you see times where you took stands that Maybe some friends, some people where you were judged showed up and you had to stay in that stand? Oh, for sure. For sure. And certainly when I left the farm, my parents just didn't get it. And then even when I left my sales position to start my own sales training company, dad said, why would you leave a company that has a car and expense account and all that kind of stuff to start something that's got an unknown to it that really struggled for the first couple of years as I was building it? I mean, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. So uh, I just needed to kind of love them the where, where they were at. They just didn't understand. So what the other thing that I learned, Patrick, and this is actually in the book Triggers that Marshall Goldsmith just recently uh, wrote, is that where you were and where you are doesn't necessarily mean that you can communicate that where you are to where you were. And here's what I mean by that. Your family, my friends, I remember going for dinner two years ago after I finished getting my doctorate degree in leadership. 
and we're having dating with my siblings. And then Brenda just announced that Ken got his doctorate. And one of my family members says, we're never calling you doctor. <laughs> wow. And so part of what we have to realize is who we become. I don't want to turn my back on my siblings. I love them. They're, we have never gotten along better. I mean, it's really been a work in progress for us because we just weren't taught that connection when we were younger. And the same thing with my parents. I go see them every week, right? And just love them where they're at and they appreciate that we come. Is that who I am now and what I do? My dad doesn't even know really what I do. It's okay. It's okay. And so I just need to love them where I was. Their perception of who I am is 40 years ago. And they they have not moved along. And so me talking about what I do, me sharing with what I do, it's irrelevant. I just go there to give. I go there to be. And I we've actually had some fun with this where I can go and we can go for dinner for two and a half hours, ask questions, all of my siblings and their spouses and never have one question back. I played that you, game. Yeah. You need, and yeah. you know what? Yeah. You need to be okay with that. Yeah, you have to. And so when you go out there, you're going to go into groups. And so I know that you and I can sit and talk around a table for hours about professional development and real estate investment and that. That would never happen with my siblings. I'd have to talk about what's going on with them. And you know what? That's the opposite of being self-centered. I don't need to share about me. I don't need to prove to you I've got this. So I know I have my doctorate, but I don't need to kind of... Somebody said to me, he said, if you have to tell the world who you are, then you're not. And so can I be in a space where I don't need to tell everybody, right? Because then that becomes this self-confidence uh, space. So when you say turn the back, it's more about can I honor people from where they are? And if they're not in the space that I've grown to, I still need to keep them as far as family. Or if I go back to a high school reunion, I'm not boasting about, oh, you know, I got a, I own 500 doors. Well, who gives a rip, right? So I'm in real estate investment. I have a network and we have some members across the country. That's it. How do you advise people that get stuck and in the world of comparing, you know, with social media the way it is, Social media for me is, is, is and I use it. I, I have, I, I don't spend tons of time on it. I, I'm not an effective user per se, but I, it's one way for me to kind of keep up with some of the things that are going in and on in some of my friends' lives that live at mm -hmm. a distance, and that's kind of an effective tool for that. Aside from that, I see often where people are comparing themselves constantly to those moments in time that are caught in a photo or a selfie or whatever that might look like. Do you experience that as a coach? Do you see that a lot where people are comparing themselves to others and then judging themselves as more successful, less successful, or whatever that looks like? Do you come across that? Not so much in my group, because I'm not, I'm coaching most people that are over 30. Right. Right. And so the people that can afford my fees are usually, you know, not just coming out of school. But I know that the research around millennials is that, first of all, all you do is you see the perfect world that everybody has. You know what? Welcome to fake news. Mm -hmm. Our, no, no life is like that. One, one of the things, one of the, the last things we want to do is compare ourselves to others. Because there's always somebody who is better. There's always somebody prettier. There's always somebody healthier. There's always somebody who has more net worth or more real estate or more or written more books or whatever. All we can do is the best that we can at that moment. Yes, it's nice to see what's going on, but can we actually appreciate the success that other people have had rather than be envious. And so envy and jealousy is just not a good, those are not good things to have, right? 
Now, be motivated in to say, well, okay, I can aspire to what Patrick's done as far as his real estate portfolio and learn from him and mentor from him. But yeah, you're right. In, the, in social media, unfortunately, that is one of the, the negatives about it. The other thing for the younger generation listening to this is 10% of college students actually have uh, bonifiable narcissism, right? And it's all about me. Well, you know, the reality is once you get out in the world, it's about other people. And so, it's. I mean, these are people that are usually healthy, self-worth, but they have a crybaby kind of attitude. And what that means is, is that when they don't get what they want, they pout. And uh, life isn't always about getting what you want. Sometimes you're going to have, most of us, all of us have had difficulties, had things getting in the way. So just be the best that you can. And the other thing that Wayne Dwyer always used to do before he passed away in his books is when you look at other people who have done it, it's not about envy. It's about inspiration that if Patrick could do that, if Patrick can grow to 500 doors or whatever, or Ken can write four books, you know what? I could do that. And I'm saying that to everybody that's listening here. If I can write four books, some pathetic dyslexic guy who couldn't, you know, whatever, then you can do what you need to do. I mean, as I, we started in the show, if I, there's no way you could have convinced me when I was 16 that I would be an author of four books. And it's just not even a chance. But um, so the same thing for you is that forget the comparisons. That's back to that true self, right? There's all kinds of um, cultural pressures, expectations. I remember, uh, without breaking confidence, Brenda had a student in her office absolute tears, but just struggling in the science classes. And her parents were from Asia and she was international school. They owned a very successful cosmetic manufacturing plant in Asia. That she was destined to be the research scientist. She hated science, Patrick. And she wanted to be in the arts. She wanted to maybe be in media, maybe PR. And so culturally she was forced down this path, but her heart was destroyed because of it. And so, you know, I the same thing for me, is that I know I could have done okay on the dairy farm, but it's not where I was supposed to sing. It's not what I was supposed to do. And so for everybody listening here, that's that's what success is, is to really move into that place that you are, the word now is flow or zone, whatever word you want to. And that happens because I'm in my authentic being. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. And if you are in a janitor in a high school and you do the best job in the world, who am I to judge that that is not success for you? I mean, I to be some yacht in the middle of uh, False Creek and, you've, and it's 150 feet, somebody's got a bigger boat. Who gives a flying rip? I, I just, I, I'm imploring on people that just, it's okay. It's okay to kind of be in that spot. I got a little preachy there, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a good yeah, job. Okay. Though, good, you know, those are, I think those are, Certainly wise words. I totally relate to what you're saying. And before we sign off, uh, first off, I want to say thank you for being on the show. This has been awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for phoning me. I was just, I said, man, man, Patrick phoned me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, you know, in the world of, and in the context for being and participating in the world of the everyday millionaire, it really is not about the net worth. It's really about the success that you've achieved, who you've had to become to achieve that. Having had the opportunity to get to know you on occasion and speak to you and listen to you on stage and do the work that you do, uh, 
I'm honored to have you on the show and I'm really pleased that you came out. Before we sign off, is there anything that you just, you know, something, I just want to add one more thing before we sign off. Well, maybe slightly controversial and you asked it, right? I just knew for me that my encouragement is that people have a spiritual side. Yes. And um, I had a loaded 22 and I was just wondering, is my wife, is my life worth anything? And so you know, and I was at that stage when I said I was suicidal, I was, and I was just said that, you know, I have nothing to contribute. And I see, you know what? It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. But it was really through my journey where in my book, I said meaning before purpose and meaning really comes out of the fact that we have a spiritual a heritage. And I share what my spiritual heritage is in my book, The Quest for Purpose, and I won't share that here and now. I will honor your journey, but I encourage you that, you know, if there's something going on that's more than just you here, just imagine that. You know, what does that mean? You know, and and I say, I, I just have perfect confidence in that it's going to be okay. And that's because I have nothing to do with it being okay. I'm just going to do my best, but I have a faith that says there's more than going on. And it was when I got in that space, and when I was about 30 years of age, I just went from despair into delight. Now, this doesn't mean that I haven't had screwed up days. And in fact, our separation happened uh, after that. However, it was because of that faith heritage that we really were back together. It was a commitment to each other beyond the problems that we were going through. And so separation was really just a cry that we were both hurting. It wasn't that we didn't want to get back together. And so I just encourage people that you would do that seeking and denying it or whatever. Uh, I think that's just doing a disservice to what you have to bring. It's it's amazing. And, and you know, I just want to say to everybody listening here is that, I mean, you and Stephanie, even though we hadn't seen a lot of each other in the last few years, we've stayed connected through different emails and stuff is that I just want to thank you for what you're doing for people and how you help them and how your heart is growing. I just, I even see the growth in you from when you first came through the program five or six years ago. And it's amazing, you know, when you get to 50, you say, oh, you know, I finally got it figured out. And then you find out you get to 55, I had no idea. And then you get to 60 and you find out you didn't have anything is that just thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing the podcast for people so that they can be encouraged and inspired and in, in reaching out and mentoring people. Because in the end, it's just all about the relationship. It's all about the relationship. On that note, we'll sign off. Ken, I look forward to the next time you're on the show. We're going to dig a lot deeper into some of these things. And uh, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.